Welcome to Out of the Woods, the Threat Hunting Podcast. First, I want to welcome everyone to our Out of the Woods Threat Hunting Live Discord Interactive Podcast that aims to cover the burning topics related to all the threat hunting and security stuff you all want to know about. But just as a reminder, this podcast is live and we'll be taking comments and questions from our Discord server. So if you want to participate, make sure to sign up using the link in the welcome message. And we'll do a quick introductions around the horn. I'm Scott Poley. Um, I'm a senior threat hunter at Cyborg Security. I do all sorts of security stuff and have a background in security. Check out my LinkedIn or connect with me there. That's great. Mike, I think you're next on the roster. Hey, it's Mike here, engineer, work with these guys to, to help build out the capabilities and deal with some other fun pre-sale, post-sale stuff. All right, Mr. Lee. Hey, uh, Lee Argonne here. Uh, I'm sure you've, I'm sure I've blasted news somewhere and you've got the pleasure of seeing my face somewhere on LinkedIn or Twitter. I apologize for that. Um, customer success, content development, and threat hunter trainer. Um, yep, like Polly said, follow me on LinkedIn, Twitter, wherever the case. We got a guest today. Mr. Tom Kostura, you want to give a brief introduction? We'll we'll go in depth a lot later, but I don't know who you are. Yeah, sure. Uh, Tom Kostura. I'm currently a SOC manager for a, a relatively large utility company in the Midwest. Kind of been in the security realm now for eight, ten years. Analyst, engineer, and now in a lead role for the last couple of years. So excited to be here. Thanks, guys. Sweet. So. Just so everyone knows, every episode we feature a cocktail recipe uh, made by our team slash chat GPT. Give it a try. Leave your feedback in the channel. It's the cryptic cloak. I think you should already see it in the Discord channel. Uh, that's what I'm partaking in today. It's kind of tasty. I would say an after dinner drink. But usually we start this off with we dive into four interesting artifacts that each of us kind of bring to the table um, before we jump into some security discussion topics. So now, you know, let's just get jump right into that um, and get this episode started with the interesting artifacts. So what you guys see currently is Mike's. So Mike, if you want to kick off. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so this is an article from Seeking Alpha. They're typically uh, centered around, you know, stock market trends, investment, VC, uh, venture capitalist. Um, so it was interesting. They're starting to talk about really at a high level, uh, cybersecurity companies and just growing demand through our current kind of financial, we'll call it a ripsaw, right? So this is really, I mean, I, I brought this to the table today because it, it affects two sides. It affects the product vendors, but it also affects those individuals in these corporations, in these organizations that are trying to mature their internal security operations centers and their capabilities. And so, you know, we always hear, we've, we've seen over the past couple of months we see all these rifts from companies like Splunk, Salesforce, Elastic, um, you name it, right? Um, and we see a lot of these firings and it, it kind of, the news would seem that everything's kind of doom and gloom. And this article really was, it was interesting saying that there was still demand through Q1. We didn't really see that dip in sales from a product vendor perspective, um, but it also seems that the budgets are still aligned with cybersecurity. So, um, just a little bit of history. So, you know, back in 2008, there was another financial, you know, uh, pretty bad financial crisis, right? Um, our CEO at Cyborg was running an MSP during that time. And cybersecurity 
you know, it, it stayed its course, right? Um, it didn't seem like the budgets were necessarily dramatically impacted, right? You still need security. You still need to, to secure your business and the capabilities that, that make revenue. And so coming into Cyborg, as we were building Cyborg and as we founded this company, uh, COVID happened, right? And so you got to imagine as we kick this thing off and, you know, incorporate and start to build a product, everything shuts down. And so it was really a lot of that experience from Dave saying, look, this will this will be okay from a cybersecurity perspective, right? Um, we're proving a value, there is value there. It's not, uh, you know, just some tool we're creating or some product we're trying to get out there, right? So we, we had that product market fit, we're able to stand the test of time through COVID. And then now we're also getting to this next kind of ripsaw effect and so, you know, at least when we see these articles and we start to understand that these companies are doing rifts and laying off people, um, cybersecurity is going to be there, right? Budgets might tighten up a little bit, um, you know, uh, you know uh, contract constriction, right? You might lower the amount of seats you might buy from a tool. Um, you might lower some of the, the tiers that you might go up on, but you still need cyber. So... I guess I want to kind of pass it around in y'all's experience. Have you dealt with budget constraints from the higher level organization down to the security side, or do you feel like you've been able to kind of operate through these kind of financial dips and valleys? I feel like Tom is the perfect person to talk to this. Hey, new guy, Tom coming in. Let's go. Hey, all right. Let's, let's hit the ground <laughs> running, I guess. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, absolutely. Um, you know, and it, I think it varies. Now, my experience is limited to where I where I manage, where I've been. Um, this is my first bout in leadership with my first major corporate company in this realm, in this in this light. Um, but you, you know, your ears to the ground, you see other people going through it, and you have a lot of you know, you know, kind of that networking community where you start talking about some of these problems. Um, a lot of it comes down to you know. You got to roll with these punches. It's just the it's just the nature of the game, right? And and it doesn't necessarily. And I think this is one of the points. This is really the point I want to make. It doesn't necessarily mean that you have to lose while you're making these you know these adjustments. You can rely on you know your talent in house to really kind of think innovatively. You can um, troubleshoot solutions with existing things that you don't necessarily have to worry about being cut um you know it's it, i'm being very generic but i i've seen it time and time again over the years that that's that's really a way to go i mean you, if you just try to think through that problem innovatively and look at what tools you do have in the toolbox so how can i use my hammer a little differently than i used it last week um you'd be surprised at the things that you actually solve thinking that way yeah i was gonna say you know with the one with the economy being bad you know it also means that the bad guys that rely on making money as part of their game they're going to need money just as much as anybody else so it's not like they're going to stop they might even be slightly more aggressive for more of the financial gain type of attacks um so like cyber becomes kind of front and center in some avenues um and you know with the world climate with everything going on in the world i feel like even with the economy going poorly but we have like conflicts and wars going on um that kind of brings cyber more forefront to the table so i feel like it might cause more conversations you have to be able to have with people questioning like why do we have this what are, you know what are we using this for and as long as you can speak intelligently and kind of back up especially if you got data to back up why we have these tools why we do these things i feel like it should be a fairly easy conversation now when push comes to shove when they're just not the dollar value i also think it's really important to understand the value of what tools and things you do have 
So if you need to make those cuts, you know what won't be as as impactful. But um, but yeah, I feel like cyber is it's one of those things. It's the the beauty of cyber is I feel like it's never going away. Um, but the problem is I feel like cyber also is still a let's solve it with a niche group of people and niche tools when it's really should become everybody's problem and everybody's responsibility, right? So. Lee, you got any uh, struggles with that in your past? So I've never dealt with budgeting. Never been, uh, when I had, even when I was in leadership position, never had to deal with budgets. Um, I, I think I am going to start paying attention to Dave more, though, that when if he stands up a company or runs starts a process, that there might be something on the horizon that correlates. <laughs> I mean, we have the house market. We had, you know, COVID now, like, kind of worried now. Um, yeah. But J-Dub actually threw in uh, the Discord chat that said MSSPs will probably get more biz, uh, get more economies of uh, scale. Yeah. So um, I'm thinking along the lines of fully. Um, cybersecurity is always going to be there, right? We always need to protect against something. Um, I do believe we are in a better position than we have been before, that getting the buy-in is easier because the CISOs and the CIOs and the CTOs they have a seat at the table that's been established now for a couple of years. Now it's like really driving home why. Before it was just like, oh, that you know, we don't need that. The question though is, um, yes, MSSPs will, if they start getting more business, because say you know some companies do have to lay off cybersecurity or SOCs or analysts or anything like that. If you're in a recession, how are you going to scale if you're getting more business? but you still have to stretch that dollar even further um and i don't have the answer god no like, but it's no, just MSP, the msp situation is interesting right we've seen it where call it five years ago there was a, a sprint to outsource your security right mm -hmm. it's it moved from on-prem to the cloud it moved from in-house security to msps um large and small organizations right but those msps don't have the people to manage the hundreds and two hundreds of clients that they have anyway, right? So all you're doing is basically just moving the ball around and you still have the same problems wherever that ball goes, right? Um, I, I, it'd be interesting though, with the amount of resources there are for open source tools, getting the buy-in oh. to be able to deploy that, right? So let's say- yeah, Your talent differently. I think that's a great point, yeah. Yeah, Look, our budget gets cut. Like we can't go buy the best of breed network tool right but we have servers that we can deploy zeke on right and mm -hmm. get the visibility and kind of leverage it internally i just think that there's a we're about to go to rsa next week right and i think they do a really good job of yelling and screaming that you need the tools to to be secure um and a lot of these open source products are just as good right so it, it's interesting to get that buy-in from managers and CISOs to say okay we don't have the budget but there is these, these, there are these capabilities out there that we can go deploy. Yeah, when I was in university space, I solved a lot of problems with open source, right? Because there's no budget for glamorous tools that people buy in big corporations. Um, and the open source community, I mean, it's, the tools are fantastic. Sometimes they even feel like they have some more capability than some of the other stuff, but you need the people to manage it. That's mm -hmm. that's where you can't lose people and go open source at the same time. Like, But at least with people, you get other returns than just a tool that runs that may or may not do what you need it to do, right? So, you know, good point. But to, to all of your points, maybe the idea for open source starts becoming more of a conversation because it opens up that idea that, hey, we need to cut costs 
So our tolerance to not have a vendor that has, you know, a warranty or support, you know, a, a premium, premium support and more, we're going to put it in the hands of our folks to run it. Yeah. Maybe that conversation starts sparking, which would be a good thing, quite honestly. The power of the people. Mm -hmm. I mean, yeah. could you imagine? Oh, go ahead. I just say to play devil's advocate, say you go open source, say you're the dude that's driving forward and he's like, I got this all Someone set leaves. up, I got this. And he's like, oh, by the way, I got a new job. And no one knows how to do it. I mean, that's the risk, right? You the support, you could be like, "Hey, you know, we need training. We got that. You know, can we talk?" You know, yeah. If that guy would run the whole thing. I think we're going to talk about that later in the podcast. But documentation is yeah. key at that point, um, and Process. separation of duties, right? Um, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I've seen that happen where you have a firewall guy that built all the policies and he leaves and you're like, what is this? What are these rules? What are these things we need to do? Right. So it happens all the time. Yeah. I see a bunch of people posting really great tools and open source things already just in our discord chat, you know, yeah, please. If you guys know of good things that, you know, share the community or with us, I like digging into things as well. Please, please post those. Those are really cool. Um, also J dubs did follow up. Uh, he said, first of all, MSSPs cost less than a full-time FTE or a full-time employee, which I, yeah. I didn't have experience, didn't even think about, because you know, you're not just paying for one of us, you're paying for our insurance. Um, and then they said they also scale well because they share detections across mm -hmm. clients, which makes sense. You know, the reuse of tools, reuse of resources that you can, um, and that, that's very insightful. Thank you very much, J-Dub. Cool, so you guys ready to move on to the next, Massive topic I've thrown on the plate. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. <laughs> All right. Open source, right? Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, now that we're talking open source, let's <laughs> talk open source. All right, so one of the things I really want to hit on is we we have hit and made reference numerous times on our weekly, on this you know live session, but we talk Sysmon a lot. And I've even had some questions as far as from folks that I've interacted with, like, you know, where to start with Sysmon, what's a good starting config, what do you do with it, all that kind of stuff. So I basically put together a swath of all my favorite resources Sysmon related, and we'll throw all those in the chat here in a second, but I'm going to kind of step through them. First, I want to say the the Swift on security. This was like the de facto, right, when it first came out um, of a great just, you know, good configuration to see most things without having too much noise type of configuration now now to take note here it is like two years old so it hasn't really been maintained i would say as as of current but it's been forked a lot so if you chase some forks you might find some interesting um forks out there which makes me pivot to my next uh resource and that is florian ross fork if you if you don't know florian roth he's a great guy to follow um connect with um just very smart person an individual when it comes to threats emerging threats malware and things like that um, he kind of has his own Sysmon configuration um, based off of the Swift stuff, but he's been maintaining it better and pulling from other repos and kind of trying to, and it's only a couple months out of date when you think about that. So just another good, like more mature, I would say resource, but I wanted to call out both because I, they both get used. One's more, I say vanilla than the other. Um, and then the other resource I really like, and I want to touch on is Olaf Hartong. I guess you'd say I'm really bad at pronouncing people's handles, so just bear with me. Um, he has a really interesting approach to Sysmon, and it's a modular approach. So he walks through the different types of file types, and, and I'm sharing this on the screen for those that are actually you know, seeing the video. 
but he will make a specific rule almost in Sysmon for a specific activity. Like if you, if I click into the process one, just for those that are looking, you can see he has all these rules for excluding things he knows or noise to put in there. And then what possible includes to put in for things that are interesting. And But what's nice is you can see the structure of what that looks like. If you want to make a really complex way to um, have emerging detection capabilities to say, hey, this just came out. We don't have visibility. How can we build that quickly? It's great examples for that. Um, the next thing I wanted to touch on was there's this uh, malwarearchaeology.com. It's like cheat sheets for logging. Um, it's like how to turn on and enable logging on all different things in Windows. Some of it has to do with some some tools, but he has a Sysmon specific cheat sheet, and I'll pivot to that next. And what's nice about his cheat sheets or their cheat sheets is they talk about basic configuration to consider outside of just the Sysmon config. Like one thing he takes note is, hey, if you're running an AV or EDR solution, make sure to whitelist the driver and the binary Sysmon's running. Otherwise, you see more impact on the system. You know, just good tips for, hey, how do I run this the best possible way? Um, the other thing I like they call out are different uses for the config where they had like, hey, if you have a malware lab, you should have different config in your like workstations versus your incident response config versus your production systems or high risk systems, kind of like profiling what configs you might run where. I like that approach as well. Um, so I just want to kind of call that out. I thought that was really cool. Next, this is a topic I've hit on before. Um, Black Hills Security, they have a whole event logging section that talks about how they collect logs, but in their DEF CON 3, which is where I'm at now, um, it actually has their Sysmon config that they've um, kind of been maintaining. And what's really nice about their Sysmon config is I just touched in there. They do a really good job mapping the MITRE technique stuff to their configuration. So as things fire and logs from Sysmon, you'll see MITRE handles, which kind of help drive what do you want to do with that or what are you possibly seeing. Really cool. And it's been maintained within since February. By, so it's not too old, which was really cool as well. And they, what's nice about them, if you look at their stuff, with for their event logging is they have a lot of PowerShell scripts meant to help maintain a lot of the Sysmon stuff. So they've built some built-in management of that. Um, there is the, the YouTube video, which will share the link to what that all is. I don't want to play it right now, but something to check out. Other resource, a few more to dig through. Um, Ion Storm, he has a Sysmon config as well, but really what I really like about him is he tried to create an install bat, and update bat for Sysmon, so some management of Sysmon, but what's really cool is at the very bottom, he has the how to hide Sysmon from services, so you know, if you're running Sysmon in your environment and attackers may look for that, and if they can find it, they may look for where a config may be running from, so they might be able to like, uh, you know, bypass kind of what are the things you're looking for. Um, he has a really cool configuration where you can run this and actually hide Sysmon from the system so it's not enumerated as, as easily. Um, kind of a cool thing um, I pulled out from that. I want to touch on the Sysmon for Linux real quick uh, from SysInternals. We use it in our lab um, for the few things that I've done for Linux. It is fantastic as far as the data because I expect the data to be formatted and similar to what I see on Windows, and it is. Granted, a lot of the event types for the Windows Sysmon very Windows driven, um, but good data because if you know anyone that works on Linux, they're usually working from the command line and having process command line type stuff in a Linux environment is very telling on uh, what's going on. So you can really kind of understand what looks good and bad very quickly. Um, another touch point is it's it's Nisalabi. Let's go with that name. 
um <laughs> sysmon tools <laughs> i know i told you handles right um this I, i'm kind of disappointed because it seems very outdated you know at least four to two years old i sysmon view is like two years old but what he was trying to do is create a visualization where you can pull out the sysmon logs and visualize the data um, and then also a GUI to help build configs. I only bring it up because if, if there's a fork of this or, the, or it works with the current version, sometimes in tuning your sysmon configs, it's visualizing things, super beneficial, right? You can say, hey, uh, what I'm seeing is a lot of noise or what I'm seeing I don't wanna see. It lets you know if your stuff's working. Um, and then Scarred Monk, um, ironically, I was reading something from the Brute Retail guy and he said he worked with Scar Monk about when he was building out his C2 framework. So obviously both very talented individuals, um, but he built Sysmon Simulator. And why I bring this tool up is this is a tool where you can actually generate the logs that you want to see that will populate in Sysmon. So if there's something you're looking for and you want to see if your configuration will detect it, you can kind of have that pre-built what techniques or data do you expect to see, and then you can test it against your config. So it's a good way to kind of validate that your config is working the way you want it to. Um, especially if you don't have like the full blown red team pen test type emulations, right? Um, so a really cool way to generate data and, or if you're doing training exercises, right? And you want to be able to generate data for people to respond to, great tool for that as well. And then last, this was brought, or not a second to last, I should say, um, the T-cell EDR telemetry, this was kind of brought to our attention today. Um, I'll pull up the actual Google sheet, but really cool for people to want to augment their data collection um, this is really highlighting what tools have visibility based on the type of telemetry, and it has Sysmon listed in some other tools. So if you need to augment your environment based on EDRs and what EDR sees and versus what you can augment with Sysmon to kind of overlay the two so you're not doubling down, um, I thought it was a really cool layout where he kind of walk or they walk through um, where they see visibility, where they don't, all that kind of stuff. So something cool to really check out. And last but not least, obviously, you should always check out the Sysmon Internals Microsoft Sysmon page because one, it it tells you it's where you get Sysmon from. It tells you all the stuff about the event IDs. But the big thing for me is this condition table. It just really helps you understand what can I do in the config to help tune my config to make sure I identify what I want and exclude what I don't. Um, there's a lot of conditions now with the newest version that lets you give a lot of control to that. So now that I did a huge dump on logging and Sysmon, um, I'll stop talking and I'll just pass the ball to you guys. I think the podcast is over. <laughs> <laughs> no, so uh, first of all, Sysmon is what got me on my journey for being a threat hunter. Um, so the, to see this, um, and that was with JP Cert back in the day. All they did was they executed uh, living off land binaries and wanted to see, hey, what does this logging look like? And they just used different logging. Uh, they, I think they had PowerShell, they had Windows native logging, and then Sysmon. Uh, and me not knowing what that was, you know, I dove into it. And it's just powerful to see that this is still, like, it still works. It's still amazing. Um, I think everyone figured out that, hey, you know, it, someone creates Sysmon for EDR logging for Microsoft. And then you see it in the EDRs, um, which is pretty much the same stuff. Um, so they built that in. So you could just see the staying power of Sysmon. Um, and I, I like that chart that you showed because there was actually, I had a conversation with someone that was saying, hey, you know, we have a SIM and we have an EDR in our environment. 
why, why should I put Sysmon in there if EDR is going to pick it up? And I was like, well, my main answer is, one, if you have a SIM, you can configure what you're going to pull in. If you have an EDR, that's kind of a black box, right? You can't really tell it to um, get extra stuff, um, you know, extra logs. Unless it's like a feature request and they can really do that, which I don't know the pain of that. Maybe it's possible, maybe not. But either way, if you have a SIM, you can definitely take your EDR logs, see what's going on here. Say, all right, well, I'm going to do the same stuff on Sysmon in my Windows environment. Compare it and say, all right, we got you know, all these logs. Here's the overlap. We're going to keep the EDR here. We're going to keep logging that. We're going to filter that all in Sysmon and just keep driving forward. So, I mean, it's... It's definitely worth it to have Sysmon in your environment. I mean, the power that you see here, all the tools that are being built off of it, um, honestly, just I just love it. It's it's great. Like I said, it got me on my journey here. Swing it over to Tom. You have experience with Sysmon? Oh yeah, yeah. For good and for good and bad, um, Sysmon's <laughs> great. I, I I don't know any any security practitioner that, that wouldn't speak you know to a level of positivity about Sysmon. Um, I guess something to try to add to the conversation that hasn't already been said, so I'm not in an echo chamber, you know, uh, the audience, practitioners, anybody trying to, um, you know, get into Sysmon, you know, my advice through experience, start small, you know, make sure you use a templated configuration, uh, going in there dry is going to lead you into a lot of problems. Um, we've, we've come across that. But the other thing too is, you know, as you, if you're looking at it and anybody's listening and you're looking at using it and really trying to scale it for enterprise, you know, really kind of think about that piece because it will take some care and feeding over time. Like Sysmon is great and it's and it's stood the test of time so far and it's still surprises by finding new ways to allow you to build detections and identify badness, right? Um, but yeah, I mean, Sysmon's amazing. Just if you're deploying in an enterprise, start with a with a known tried and true. I mean, Polish, you shared a lot of great options. Actually, I really like that EDR telemetry. I've never seen that before. That's interesting. I, I'm looking forward to giving that an additional look. But yeah, Sysmon's awesome. Yeah, I think we were laughing because we spoke about some of the issues that Sysmon in the past. Lee, Anarchy, Arcanal over here causing <laughs> issues with Sysmon. APC Lee. <laughs> King, 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 King. Yeah, I might or might not have been there. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think one of the biggest, um, I, not biggest negatives, but one of the things that's hard to do with Sysmon is, again, that management of it. Um, and I think that's why you pull up that Sysmon Tools um, repo, right? Like, I know people could probably distribute it via GPO policies, you know, SCCP if you're a full Windows shop, manage configs that way, but it's still, um, there's not like a native, really easy way to do it and turn on logging for each one of the things that you want. Like staring at the XML can be daunting for people who don't look at XML. Um, and so being able to manipulate and add things in as you go over time could be daunting. But to Tom's point, start small um, and then build upon what you need for a visibility perspective, right? Um, and and I think Lee mentioned it, out of all the art, excuse me, out of all the EDR tools that I've used in the past, um, I think Elastic might be the only one that you can define in the, the YAML to go after other, uh, like event logging, um, which is interesting, right? So yeah, to turn on visibility if you don't already have it is very hard to do. And so you really need to understand how to supplement that. And that Excel sheet that you brought up again, you know, Tom, you said it, 
Like that's impressive, right? That takes a lot of time to build. I, I'm I'm curious how that person's going to maintain this over time. Um, but uh, you know, go ahead. Scott. Yeah, the one the one thing that I would say there's a gotcha in that sheet is just because you have some visibility to a telemetry. Like I was I always use registry keys as an example. Obviously, a lot of tools will look at registry keys but they're not equivalent as far as what registry keys they monitor. There's overlapping there, but that's why a lot of adversaries use a lot of different keys, especially depending on what environment they're after, because they already know which ones aren't being watched by what tools. Yep. That's what's cool about Sysmon is that's where you can easily double down on things that you know or you can test and know that aren't in your being detected or monitoring environment. So. Yeah, and I love it. I always bring this up with the open source side. The act, the the bad actors are probably looking at the same repos as we are well they use open source attack tools now right like i mean it'd be funny exactly. it's like it's really like open source versus open source in some some avenues and it's like if if you actually did a bake-off between the open source attack versus the open source defense tools i don't know who would win they're they're both sides are so really like really good you know so but you know what you can adjust quicker is the open source defending tools that's true right? well, that's what ends up happening is people quicker. like they like fork it and make it really amazing and then you're that's when you're screwed right right or turn things off and on as you need depending on the yeah. attack right it'd be hard to call up a major edr then you'd be like hey i need to see this visibility because i'm getting attacked right now yeah right yeah, yeah, yeah. so I, i'm gonna I have a question for actually all three of you because i think all three of you have been in a position that i haven't been and i, I would say that's dealing with um sims management administration dealing with the amount of logs that are coming in um so for someone who wants to send this out and someone says hey i had sysmon i want to deploy my environment i have 2000 endpoints i a certain sim that costs a lot of money and every right. time i bump up or every time i get ingest more logs i bump up a license how can you help i'll let tom go first sure um I think I'm, I'm going to take a stab. I'm, if I get off rails, just, you know, course correct me. Um, from some of my experience, I think a couple ways is, again, like, you know, you're going to manage that load, whether you have 2,000 endpoints, 100 endpoints, 10,000 endpoints. Um, it starts and ends at the at the config that you deploy for Sysmon. So, Mike, Mike, you nailed it head on. That, that XML file can be very tedious to get after, but if you're going to deploy Sysmon Enterprise-wide, you better have some folks familiar with that configuration because you are going to need to adjust it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that, really. Um, but I think past that, like if you're looking to send into a sim, so say you can add control layers. Um, there's something, you know, I, I have experience with in the past of, of, of leveraging Windows event forwarding as kind of a mid-hop that lets you do additional um, filtering. You know, you can kind of like collect the things, but you send the things you want to send to SIM, right? Instead of just opening the pipe from the endpoint of the Sysmon log and pulling it in, if, if your SIM doesn't allow you to control that with some kind of an agent, um, that that can help. Um, I wouldn't recommend large scale with that. Never seen the scale well, but ideas like that. So if you can, you know, pre-processing into your SIM, do some kind of filtering, some kind of layering, and just pulling what you need. You know, really look at again. If you're bringing in a SIM, you're bringing in it for a reason. So stay true and tried or tried and true to your use cases and what you're trying to develop with it and start there and just build up. Don't just open the pipelines, build up. And you can manage that pretty well, I think, if you consider all those things. Yeah. Scott, you got any? Yeah. So, you know, one of the things I know is I always try to, as I, especially when I'm developing use cases for threat hunting, um, 
and there and there's specific logging that I need and it's not natively present because it's either not turned on in Windows or there's not a sysmon config for it. I go down the path both times to figure out how to do both because you know depending on who our customers are they may or may not be using sysmon and if it's capable in Windows we want to try to show like how you can do that. And it seems very consistent. We talk about that log volume perspective. I can write a better sysmon config to produce exactly what I'm looking for versus when I turn on the logging in Windows and an auto policy, I get a lot more noise because it's like a, it's more like a light switch versus something that I can like a dimmer switch, right? I feel like with sysmon, you almost have that dimmer switch where you can find a better medium where you can exclude some things and, and what you want to collect around a specific event. Um, versus with Windows, it's like, I want to see these types of events with this type of thing in it. And you're like, okay, that's cool, except for the system uses that thing repeatedly. And I'm only looking for these edge cases. So I feel like with Sysmon, if you're smart and you get kind of mature with it, um, you can actually cut some of your logging down. Now, the disadvantage with Sysmon is when you configure it for specific things, um, you might only have specific visibility. So you got to figure out how to kind of do both. How can I collect the everything I care about and then niche things as well? And you, as you get better with your config and mature, you can do that. And some of those examples I provided from those sites help build some of that. Um, that's where I sit. When it comes to Windows logging, for instance, off logs, PowerShell. I would almost do everything else Sysmon related. Um, I'm sure there's going to be some edge cases I'm not thinking about, like, you know, probably application logs and things like that. But um, between typical security logs, off and PowerShell, I'd put the Windows and I just use Sysmon for everything else. It's my preference. And yeah, I think, you know, all points, again, not to repeat anybody, but I guess we have to assume that there's already logging going into that sim. There's already some sort of logging and visibility there. So again, it's just working backwards from your, um, maybe your, your gaps. Right. Um, I think starting out, I know kind of the attack service management side, that is kind of a buzzword. People are talking about that a lot right now. It's very important to understand and really start left of threat intelligence of, you know, what actual visibility, what gaps, what risk, um, who's going to attack us. That all goes into kind of the maturity of the organization. And so as you start to turn on these things, Again, tying it back to the techniques and tactics that are most relevant to you is a great way to start um, to understand that visibility as you start to tick up that logging. But I mean, once you turn on the sim, you almost end up chasing your tail with alerts and all the other things that come along with it. So it's a uh, it's kind of a never-ending cycle, right? The snake eating its tail um, with trying to configure and manage. I don't think there's an organization out there that has a perfect sim or SOC environment. And if there is one, please let me know because. <laughs> have not talked to them yet. If there is one, they're lying to you. Exactly. <laughs> He's lying to you. There's a big hole that nobody's talking about, right? <laughs> All right, cool. Are, are we, have we beat up my voluminous Sysmon discussion, you think? We're good to roll on? Yeah. Cool. All right, so the next lead, we're going we're gonna to jump to yours. I'll pull up the site um, if you want to introduce it. Absolutely. Um, so, pause real quick. We're not going to stop on Sysmon. JC789, while we're on the topic, asks, um, for all the value of Sysmon, what about the rule to be careful about Trojan utilities during forensics? Could Sysmon be Trojaned to ignore the attacker artifacts? 
Could any dependencies for items that Sysmon depends on be Trojan and then the output is useless? Or worse, or worse than useless, since it could be misleading to the analyst as far as false negatives. So basically, what happens if there's supply chain tech on Sysmon? Am I understanding that right, JC? Is it that or if an attacker is in an environment and they manipulate the logging in a way so that... I have attacked Sysmon to basically disable Sysmon, but you don't know it's disabled, right? Where it just loses visibility. So an attacker's, I, and I, I've read a lot of things from a lot of different um, places that like, they're really pro Sysmon, um, but Sysmon becomes a target in some avenues because it can be very powerful depending on who's managing it, right? Um, so there are there are some specific failure type things when it comes to Sysmon, but there are some attacks um, where you can kind of do things with the driver to kind of disable the driver component but the Sysmon service is still running. That's kind of what I'm alluding to with the attack against Sysmon. Um, we, uh, well, I mean, I think I built a, a hunt package around that, but the, I mean, the idea is, yeah, you've got to look at how do you defend your, your components um, that you use for security. And that's where it does help to look for if Sysmon, for instance, is being attacked, and you're not getting logs. I mean, if you have good visibility for when things stop logging, you should see a huge deficit um, in logs when it comes to certain devices or devices on the network in general, or whatever. Um, that could be yeah. a, a telling thing, right? Or, um, or the actor has access to one of like you know Lee's Sysmon scripts, and they drop it on, and it just starts logging like crazy. <laughs> like oh, too much logging. Down. I should. No, really good. Like you bring up a very, very good point. Can you imagine like what that could do to a security operation where all of a sudden the config just gets replaced by include everything, right? Um, then, you or the flip the include yep. to includes. Right. So, so yeah, so that's something else. Like I, I believe there's something when the config gets updated, it gets logged. And if not, there at least is done usually through the command line. So you could probably create some detections based on the command line running the Sysmon executable to determine when people are trying to leverage that, but it usually requires administrative privileges. So not saying that really stops anybody, um, but at least if you put the files and things in protected areas, uh, it should limit or cause an attacker to create more noise to get there. Um, but yeah, you should always be, I mean, the same thing can happen. Like what was it, the, the guy who developed Mimi Cats, he, uh, was both like people were boasting about how look we can stop Mimi Cats blah 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 and he got really upset so he figured out how to use everyone that boasted about how they can stop Mimi Cats and use their EDR tool to then deploy Mimi Cats like <laughs> I mean it happens right like I mean it's, it's it's basically saying like yes it's a cat and mouse kind of game and you just got to be smart about it one of the biggest cybersecurity flexes ever yeah that was <laughs> awesome I loved it so. okay but yes so um thank you for answering that question. Uh, so also, the Median Report. Today, or yesterday or the other day, the M Trends 2023 came out. Uh, I know we think, I think we beat up the IBM um, report, and this is basically the same thing um, from Mandian's point of view, Mandian's data, um, you know, and their insight. So I'm not gonna read all 108 pages to you. Holy uh, tried earlier today, I think he didn't make uh, it. You got halfway through. You gotta, you gotta match you know, Scott's energy, right? You gotta just <laughs> you know, dump it. I'll see who's dedicated. <laughs> um, 
you lee also should be voluminous <laughs> but so um so you know when i posted on linkedin it even said like estimated read 128 minutes i was like holy crap um so you know going through and normally for mandiant reports or big CrowdStrike or um <laughs> sorry jw um for if they're quick and we saw this attack what happens how I approach it is I go in there, I look at, I look for the uh, artifacts that were interesting, find the relationships between processes, file name, and so on. Things that I can use um, and basically authorizationalize data or the Intel report so that I can use it in our environment to create a hunt package. So I and when I say you know relationships, I'm not looking looking for, uh, I'm looking for like what is this process kicking off, you know. This is the child process, this is the parent process. Does that make sense? Are these executing from the correct directories? I um, you know, thinking like something of how can I use this and see what happened here in search in my environment. These reports, on the other hand, give us the big picture, which I think is great because <laughs> um, because it takes everything that we're doing and it shows us overall. So it's like, you know, why are we focusing on these? You know, customers ask, people ask, you know, what should we be looking for? And we say, well, look for these top 10 MITRE techniques. Why? Well, we've seen them a lot in the threat intel reports that we've authorizationalized. Most of the hunt packages that we've created are probably those uh, MITRE tech techniques. And we say, okay, um, you know, that's why we think you should start here. But this report tells us, hey, this was real life these were real life attacks that we saw um and you know this is the data that we got from it and it's like wow okay how can we compare what we're doing to the real life and then say okay we need to make some adjustments we need to change our focus a little bit or if we're right there or close to it we can keep going um so the one one um thing that really caught my mind and i'm just going to give you a couple of highlights I'm going to try and copy and paste these in there if possible. Nope. Um, is the dwell time was actually reduced um, this year. On some regions. So, what? If you look at the different regions, one region actually increased, but most Sorry, of them. Yes, I'm talking about the global, the global okay. time. And, um, thank you, uh, Cyborg. Uh, but so my, my, you know, last year I read it. And I'm pretty sure it said it was down because of ransomware. And you're like, well, yeah, you know, they get in there, they go quick, they get to the end of the job, and that's it, right? That's all they want to do. And you think, and I was like, man, like they're getting better at ransomware. And actually, that was not the case this year. Um, the fact is that um, they mention that from external sources, uh, it reduced again, but it was 19 days. And then from internal notifications, it was 13 days. And they really talked about the, um, the power of partnerships between organizations working together that say, hey, you know, you know, we're security researchers. We're seeing a bunch of stuff over here. You know, what's going on? Is that your company? And that, that kind of speaks about the, the growing community where it's not like we're siloed anymore, where it's like, oh, they got, compromised all right we're just going to ignore it or we're going to take advantage of this and say we'll never get compromised and so on but it's nice to see that it wasn't um or the, I, I should say again the global median dwell time 
wasn't down because of ransomware. Now, ransomware is still happening, but the fact that notifications are going up is really good. Um, I'm sure you know a lot of it has to do with what's going on in Europe and Russia, um, where researchers and organizations are having a you know, closer eye. Uh, but there is some good coming out of that. Um, so there, also, anything about increased capabilities outside of the human element and the the sharing and communication? Does it talk about tooling? Does it talk about visibility? Does it talk about like? So it talks about. It mentioned detection by source, I noticed, and I was going to touch on this, where it basically highlighted where were detections happening, external or, or internal. And I thought that was an interesting breakup. And then what was surprising to me was, like, 2011, it was 94% of detections that they were seeing were externally being identified. And now it's kind of fallen um, in 2022. Now it's like 63% are still externally identified. But I still think it's a high number. Um, but I think they went to, um, when you looked at non-ransomware, internal actually was winning, right? And maybe because ransomware is so public, it was very easy for people to just like externally, they would identify those types of things. But but that really threw me that looking how close external and internal were because, you know, I like to think that when you run a security team, like you're finding most of the big things that happen, not somebody else. Um, and I was kind of surprised by that. But what, I don't know if that speaks what, to tools, but yeah. What would be identified as that external? Like, I think external reporting, like you, they get notified either by security firm, by government, or like public shame, you know, like I like to call it, where someone says, hey, I popped you and this is proof, you know, that kind of thing. Could you lump that external into those MSPs that we talked about earlier? Like, would that be an external group outside of your organization? Would, oh, yeah, that's a good question. Outside, I don't know. Falcon Watch be outside your organization, right? I'm, I'm just trying to figure out what the delineation well, like is. Mandiant, maybe like, you know, I don't know. I can't remember what exact services they provide, but obviously if they were identifying it before a customer reached out to them, that they had that visibility, I would ex I would assume they would account that as external, but I don't know. I, I would, uh, yeah, they, they, they do have that service. And yeah. so it's probably tied to their capabilities, right? Um, you're not going to put out this massive report and not have it kind of nudge you in the direction oh, yeah. of the, if you use us we'll find those for you yeah well, yep. so they said the increase in external notification observed in 2022 is likely impacted by mandiant's investigative support of cyber threat activity which oh, targeted ukraine right. and yep. increase in proactive notification efforts yep so there we go yeah um which i also i completely skipped that note but external notifications was up from to 63% from 47% in 2022. So um, once again, I was going to note on that, you know, you bring up that point we talked about sharing, right? And people are sharing to be better at responding and that might help. Mm -hmm. I mean, and we talked about MSSPs earlier, you know, that's the advantage with the same adversary being aggressive in real time to multiple entities, right? What you learn from what they do here, detect them here, you can detect them there and there so it gets easier and easier for someone who has visibility across multiple verticals or organizations for some aspects because of that so i feel like that kind of based on the climate of today it probably empowers a lot of those like you know mssps slash mandate type services right just thought yeah so going back to mike your point too uh at the very last sentence of detection by source um you asked about the human element they actually said this this number increased a lot because they had more people 
attending the threat hunting workshops that we have. <laughs> oh yeah, that was that's that's a really valid point. That's cool. That's great. It's not actually there. That's awesome. I like cool. things. No. Um, but so moving on, so industry um, industry trends, uh, and this was another call out to what's going on in Ukraine is that um, government was the highest across the yeah. board. Um, and if you think about why that would be, you know, Ukraine exactly, right? Um, you got two big, strong cyber governments going at each other. Um, that's gonna, it's really dwarfed everything else. I mean, think about all that we've learned. Um, I know I posted a while ago uh, a article that they read or they, they collected all the wipers that have been seen in the conflict so far. And it oh, was yeah. a big report. It was just like, man. Um, you know, so they're attacking, you know, they're trying to undermine each other, you know, trying, Russia's trying to tear down um, Ukraine's government bit by bit so that it's just a bit easier for the taking. Um, also, this one was interesting to me. Um, and it really made me, it was really surprised. But data theft is up from 29% to 40%. I think ransomware um, drives that though, right? Because they're doing a lot of extortions. So you would think, right? Um, and let me see real quick what I'm going to say. Um, so I, they think they were actually, um, they believe that they were, the goal was changing from extortion to just intellectual property theft. Um, oh, I mean, yeah. So it said uh, in 19% of these intrusions, uh, the data stolen was used by the threat actor during negotiations for uh, payment. So, I mean, it, it's there, but it's not like a, or, I mean, it's almost half. Um, well, oh, no, take it, well, think about this, like China's economy, right, was kind of suffering for, you know, recent COVID restrictions they have and whatever. And a big part of their market, not trying to like shame China, but is intellectual property theft. That's like a big part of their cyber market for why they break into places and steal things because they can produce them at a cheaper cost and compete with other industries globally. So maybe that that plays into that. I don't know. Just throwing it out. There. Like, go ahead. Okay. Oh, I was gonna say, wasn't there a major shift in at least in the United States, um, the reporting timelines that organizations have to do if they are breached? So I, I think either I CISA or was it CISA? I think they increased the time that you had to uh, disclose a potential breach within, I think it was like a week, right? So Yeah, they, they always try to shorten it, but they don't never do a good job defining what that means, which is the right. most frustrating part, right. but yeah. I'm just, I was kind of tying to the fact that these numbers are starting to creep up. We're starting to see the, the proliferation of uh, ransomware and oh, data integration yeah, yeah. with tied to, they're just talking about it more. Right. Oh, I'm sure those numbers were kind of not as drastic, but maybe something else happened on the reporting side that got them that information. Oh, the graphs are amazing on this, by the way. Oh, it's, it is amazing. <laughs> it's like, honestly, if you're going to read these reports, the first thing I always do is like scroll through and look at graphics. And if the graphics can tell me at least something, then I'm like, okay, this might be worth reading. If I read graphics and I have no idea what I'm looking at, I'm like, this is gonna take a lot of work, and I don't have time to read a hundred and some pages. Linear scatter plots, all right, with regression yeah. models built in. It's like, oh. yeah. 
But yeah, I don't know. Um, for the sake of time, any any high topics you guys want to touch on in the specific report? Because there's a lot here, and I do think like if you've got the time, um, I got halfway through it in like an hour. Um, I got two go more ahead. points. And there you go. I found this interesting. In 27% of attacks, they found multiple threat actors in the environment, which tells me that either threat actors are trying. Um, or like a zero day comes out and then everyone goes and tax it, right? So everyone's like, hey, we compromised this. And then now it's just like a race to the uh, keys of the kingdom. Or in my mind, maybe the initial or the uh, initial access broker gets access to it and then says, I'm going to sell this to as many people as I want. Right? Because they don't care, right? I was going to say, it's a, it seems to be the case. Um, I mean, we're sitting over here, we can't know for sure, but the bad guys are working together a lot more than the, the good guys are so i bet it's a lot of that a lot of overlap a lot of selling their access the tooling etc so the, the one thing i noticed in the report and this is like a pet peeve of mine i, I wanted to mention this i guess so i'm glad you kind of paused here is they mention um the like 3500 plus threat actors or threats and i hate that because they're like they're like unique behaviors they've seen in incidents so it's like a behavior profile and this is where a lot of, i think of industries they need to brand a threat actor and then talk about how they know about them and this is what i really like about dragos is they do a really good job of saying hey we named this threat actor we we think they're associated with maybe said country and make some attribution but they really focus on the profile behavior and if that profile behavior changes they just give it a new name because they want to make sure to stay consistent and not bring all that old behavior into the new behavior aspect or, or, or visibility because that's really what it's about. Like it's like, for instance, you're not going to be doing XP attacks on Windows 2010. So why would we keep those threat actor profiles around for the behaviors? Or, I mean, granted, I know a lot of techniques still are applicable, but like still like that, that mindset, right? 3,500 plus threats. That just, that just speaks to me there's some unique profile that needs to be done, and we don't need to be holding on to how we attribute things as strongly, right? Um, but that was a pet peeve of mine. But, you know, it's interesting to see there's that many unique things in people's environments. So it shows that they're very crafty as far as changing based on their infrastructure. And the last one I will mention is that there has been very little shakeup with the top 10 most frequently seen the techniques. Uh, if you look at the first picture in Discord, that's from this year's report. If you look at the one in red, that's from last year's report. Um, now, I believe the the top two just flipped, so they're still the same. Um, but for the most uh, for the most uh, cases, they're all the same, or they're very close to the same. So if once again, if you're looking for a starting point of saying, what am I looking for? Where should I start? Yeah, Here you that's very good information. Two in a row, yeah. right? I need to caveat that with don't just go out there and run an emulation against command and stripping interpreter and be like, all right, I'm cool, didn't find anything, I'm done. Right? Like yeah. tie that to the actor or the threat or the risk that you care about. Or is just covering down on that TTP and that one instance. If you go look at MITRE, they do have some uh, some emulations. Uh, Invoke Atomic Test has some emulations. Uh, Veriden might. Those other tools might Skype is another one, but it's not tied to a thing that you you should probably care about from an environment. So how I like to use this data 
is not like, let me go find how to emulate these techniques. It's when I read threat reports, what techniques do I focus on the most, right? Because I'm like, hey, these are really popular. Threat reports come in. That means, do I see these there? And how are they, what techniques are they using to, to do this miter tactic technique, right? Like, how are they proceduralizing that? Because then I can start figuring out, well, what's common and what's not. So how can I write a hunt or a detection that crosses over across all these threats that are using this type of technique? Do my techniques, the way I have them detected or hunted for today for these specific, like T1059, command and scripting interpreter, it's a pretty broad category. How do I have that covered based on focusing just on that across threat reports, right? Like you said, like it, that just highlights that I, I should expect to see that with almost 50% of the adversaries. Right. Um, so that when I look at reports, that's what I should be focusing on from a prioritization standpoint with threat intel. It's, it's yeah. And if it's okay, if I add really quick, you know, to Mike's yeah. point of don't look at just one and say, hey, look, I scanned it, I'm done. Um, you know, these intel reports, a lot of the stuff that comes out, there's a lot of solid ones that really kind of, and the tools, Mike, that you mentioned were great, like especially leveraging MITRE and kind of seeing some of those emulation models. Uh, every place has visibility gaps. So if you kind of just kind of hit them one to one to one and you don't really start patterning that behavior and looking at how they chain together, where in the kill chain they're hitting, where you in your environment can actually see these things happening, you know, you're going to you're going to set yourself up for failure. So it's yeah, you don't want to kind of just look at them one for one. You really want to look at that, you know, put it into its own story and look at the, you know, navigating that story as a whole. Um, I just I had to I had to add on to that, Mike, because it was a great yeah, point. Absolutely. Yeah, don't think that if you can detect um, command scripting interpreter, that's half of the attack. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, I think we have 30 left, right? So you want to switch over to the... Well, it's Tom, you want, to hit your, you want to hit your topic and then we'll do you? Yeah, sure. Awesome. Yeah, I think it. Um, at least what I was intending to do with this, I think it'll catapult pretty well into the next the next part. Um, so the nugget that I'm bringing to the the conversation today oh, it was a report. Um, um, it was today actually that uh, I was made aware of by a, a couple of my senior analysts um, in house that I uh, have been burning on all day, and I'll, I'll explain why in a second. But it's a report from Mandian about the three CX software supply chain attack um, with some attribution and kind of talking about how it was a daisy chained supply chain attack basically um, the report is solid i won't i won't go down and break uh, break it down word for word because the the reason i wanted to talk about this I'm, i want to kind of jump to that pretty quickly um, but there are some really solid nuggets in this report um, especially if there's any anybody listening anybody that does listen um, or aspiring content developers i think this report is really solid for giving you a lot of nuggets to go out and try to find some of those kind of daisy chained attacks that we you know i just mentioned um, there's a section down at the bottom that kind of touches on all the miter attack um, uh, all the MITRE attack techniques that are that are seen within the attacks. You have a lot of IOCs inside of there. Um, you can really hit the ground running looking for some of the stuff. So it's a really it's a really solid report to to leverage to you know to build detections or con consider building detections or some sort of content from. Um, but the reason that I kind of wanted to talk about it, especially when I'm sitting at the table with some sec um, security professionals and you know there's people active in the chat, which is great. Um, this is something that I think we're all aware of. Supply chain attack is very much a thing that's being leveraged and it seems like the ones that are being popped are, are getting bigger and bigger or more widespread and it's a scary vector when you're looking at protecting your own enterprise because 
most people deal with many, many vendors, right? Um, so this has been kind of spinning in my brain all day, and I, and I really want to pitch it as a topic to get your guys' opinions um, and anyone in the chat, of course. Um, what what would be some you know just some some high level surface ideas for how you could detect or pivot a detection or pivot a hunt um, to looking at okay we you know we were we were hit by this vendor but we we get intel like this that says another vendor was daisy chain now you have to go back and and find that vendor um, I can't help but think um, that there might be some analytics or some methodologies that could be put in place to be a little more proactive in your own environment with tracking vendors and understanding what might be there instead of just having to be like most of us are sitting and waiting for that report to come out that says this vendor got hosed really bad and they are widespread active actively used in our environment and now the whole house is on fire so i i hope that makes sense guys i'm happy to expand but yeah. i'm gonna i'm gonna silence and see what you guys think i'll uh, i'll jump in um so you know, one of the things I always harp on and I bring up constantly is the idea of profiling. Um, and so obviously, you know, we put out like four hunt packs around this specific vulnerability. And one one associates with the loading of the no malicious DLL. One's about the way that the desktop application executes. Um, one about how it calls itself an execution which is a very suspicious for some supply chain based things because it's like you know using itself which is not normal for a lot of applications and then the last one i talk about profiling it's about looking at the dns request to non-3cx domains and when i think about threat hunting in general like you're looking for behaviors right for know how actors behave but i feel like in that built-in time when you're spending that time doing proactive hunts some things you should incorporate are like let's look at the the type of software we use in our environment and what we well, how we categorize risk from a supply chain perspective which will be the riskiest types of software we actually own and why not profile hey how does this software communicate as far as external resources how does this software execute as far as what's the execution chain typically look like because you can build really good detections for that or at least have something where something does come up like this comes out you're like oh stuff just went crazy we got to know what's going on um now i have a cheat sheet at least some sort of documentation to reference like well this is what i should see what do i see differently how can i build that on the fly whatever um that's why i'm like a huge advocate for understanding your environment and that's why i just like to if i have nothing better to do i'll just profile how things work like hey let's look at all the different flags on the logs to see what logs are slightly different and why you know it's just like on, our, on whatever topic you want to uh, touch on but I think from your supply chain perspective, if you have a software that you're dependent on as a business that's installed everywhere in your environment, why not just spend an hour or two to understand how does that thing operate? How does it communicate? Um, just so you know your left and right limits as far as if I had to investigate this specific thing, where would I start? Yeah, I guess I'll go next. Um, it's really, really scary, right? when these type of things happen. Uh, the log for shell is another great example that I think um, a lot of people kind of puckered a little bit, right? Like it was it was a scary situation. That one's different, right? So you talk about 3CX, it's a piece of software that you're selling across your org. That is the thing. Log for shell, which is really scary about that is that it was Apache and it was nested in a lot of other security, um, uh, excuse me, uh, software, right? 
And so then you had to understand the dependencies of all your software and where that fit in um, based on that kind of vulnerability that was passed through, right? I would posit that if you have a Windows application and there are there are requirements for a developer to submit something to the Play Store and the Apple Store, I feel like it would be very easy for that developer of that application for that software, call it Windows, to include not only what firewall ports need to be open for it to run, but the execution chain, right? I feel like they should know it. It'd be really interesting if you created a, a uh, kind of a standard in order for you to get it, a piece of software signed by Microsoft or um, deliver that, there needs to be some level of uh, accountability on the software vendor side to include some of that documentation information potentially, right? Um, they're starting to do that on the DevOps side with packages that are being deployed as they go through the CI/CD pipeline. You're, you're validating the package, you're validating what that package is doing, um, and you're able to scan those things as it goes through that pipeline and you might publish something into AWS, but it's a lot harder to do from a, a software perspective, right? So um, it, it's, it's a hard problem to solve. I don't know if you can proactively assume that this software is bad and go hunt for it, um, but to Scott's point, if there's some way you can profile and understand what that software is doing. Because you, you typically probably already have an approved software list. Mm -hmm. So okay. go take a look at each one of those those tools. Maybe, sorry, maybe you'll have an approved <laughs> software list. Sorry. You don't ask your security guys. We can give you <laughs> access to all the names of the tools that are running in your environment. Yeah, Tom, you got any or any yeah, yeah no, no, I no, that's that's great. And I and I, you know, I've seen, you know, through firsthand you have I bet a lot of companies, probably not most, probably less than um, should be aspired to, um, have you know have that approved software kind of list and and all of that. And right. you know what I've seen working in a SOC and and talking to other SOCs and and understanding kind of how people look at that is like some some analysts that you know you tend to you know you kind of you have a curtain but it's not all the way covering the window. So you have this approved software list and people are like, oh, it's it's approved. And, you know, they're not really looking at the behavior of things or maybe that behavior is maybe a twist new or maybe they go blind to it because it is in an approved software. Yeah, I think that's, so that's a big where, part, right? Right, right. So, not, you know, that's got my mind spinning on, you know, I, I, I'm sure because generally the things I'm thinking about are generally not doable. But the idea of, you know, looking at maybe some of your critical software, some of your most important software that comes from a third party vendor and baselining its activity all the way down to the nitty gritty, like finding out what its baseline is. So if it curves from that at all, you just have some kind of suspicion or at least the thing of note that you can circle well, back to later. I would say what you should prioritize on because an adversary typically unless it's like a ridiculously focused type of targeting it's going to go after what they expect to be running across your entire environment like for instance if you work at a bank and use specific banking software to your bank it's very critical to high critical assets that's not going to be like maybe they want to be able to exploit it but from a supply chain perspective they want to be able to get their footprint everywhere the easiest possible way so when you think about what software you want to look at and, a, and validate and profile or whatever, look at what makes your business run amongst like how people work and how people communicate. Because if you look at almost like all supply chain attacks thus far, 
that's that that focuses on it like how does it effectively work how do people effectively communicate because those are the tools that adversaries can take the most advantage of um to have kind of the biggest impact as far as capability and access so you know I, that's how i would look at from that prioritization standpoint yeah lee you had something so you read yes your hand. Uh, i typed in the chat so i didn't forget it because we know how i work um check the directory it's coming from whether it's legit whether it's open source whether it's whitelisted blacklisted you know whatever the case may be is it a living off the land binary where is it triggering from or is it installed program in your programs directory versus your downloads directory? <laughs> I put Temp. all my stuff in your folder so that I know that's <laughs> I noticed. I noticed. Smart, Smart play. Um, like any, so if you install program, right? Um, and I believe I learned this from one of our uh, one of our partners or our customers that um, SysWow or System System32 is 64-bit, SysWow is 32-bit on a 64-bit program. Mm -hmm. Program files x86 is 64-bit. 32. 32, I was, gonna, I was just about to say how much, <laughs> but program files is 64-bit. So if you have anything that's running from, if you're in a 64-bit system and you see SysWow 64, red flag. Do you see programs files 32? That might be a red flag. But if you see something like, let's see if this works. Um, I pulled this from the defer report. Any desk running from the user's videos folder. Even if any desk does exist, does that make sense? Like, check with your admins, check with the people that allow this. Is this where we threw it? So to highlight kind of what you're talking about to the folks that are listening, um, way back in the day when there was more compatibility requirements for 32 and 64 bit, you know, most exploit code was written 32 bit exploit code for payloads. Um, but the unique thing about that is that means if you exploited a 64 bit program and it was going to call any kind of system based code, it would call from the SysWow 64. Great example of this. Look at how Cobalt Strike worked. Right, a lot of their payloads for exploiting were 32-bit written, and then all of a sudden you have a 64-bit program that would branch into 32-bit code, and it was a telltale sign something was exploited. So I I don't think it's going to be as common today because more people are starting to develop 64-bit kind of exploit and payloads. Um, but still, something to take note of when you see that behavior, as far as what what Lee was referencing, it's kind of a, it was a very powerful tell um at least a few years ago um i just don't know how long it'll stay true obviously as long as 32-bit exists you'll see it but um it's kind of kind of a shame we're we're modernizing everything in a weird way to say that but yeah about 50 years though right i mean yeah i know oh, yeah, we got time we got time we just lost windows 7 support but that will be used <laughs> until windows 38's out um, yeah windows 7's in xp yeah most most airports are probably still running xp <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. So we want to move over to the next section. I know we're, we're yeah. Running out of time, yeah. So, so Tom, we're gonna to put you on the hot seat for this section. You know that can um, only go well. Yeah. All right, let's go. We're gonna um, ask our questions at the same time. You have to answer yeah. correctly. <laughs> How fast can you answer questions? No. So really, what we want to dig into, um, because I mean, some of us know you personally, and we know you have a, you know, uh, a, I think a good story. 
but we really want to know how did you get started as far as like cybersecurity? Like, you know, what barriers did you run into? How did you overcome them? Where did you start? How did you finish? That kind of thing for the first question. And there's a couple more questions too I want to hit on, but let's just start with that. Sure. Um, you know, I I got into this game way late. Like I'm not a career IT folk. Um, I was doing a bunch of jobs, you know, coming up. I came from a, a, a really poor area, um, inner city kid, and uh, not a lot of opportunities that were out there for me to even understand that this was a career path. Um, I had a knack for technology. I like computers as they were coming up, but you know, I'm I'm old enough to be in the very early early age of computers, where the the, the green and black Oregon Trail is still fantastic, and I can't wait to get my hands on it again. Um, but yeah, I pivoted into you know I was doing construction work uh, for a local municipality, doing road work, and um, just figured you know this isn't right. I'm you know I can do more, so I went back to school and then started i figured it that's what i went after associates and networking that's that's kind of like a commonality for a lot of people right and then you start as you're going through that you start figuring out like wait cybersecurity is a thing this is really cool so you know all that all that little fuzzy feeling i got from watching hackers or whichever era you are you have a hacker movie that you like if you're in cybersecurity that's like the original um and I was like, oh, this could actually, I could go get paid for this? Like, yeah, I want to do this. So, you know, broke into it. Um, my degree only got me into a network operations center, but I was lucky enough to, you know, get to a place where I was able to interview for um, the department I'm in now. And uh, I came in, level one security analyst. I'm like, all right, cool, I got the job. Showed up the first day, I'm sweating balls, just sweating, nervous, anxious. Like, they have they have no idea. I have no idea what I'm doing. I don't know what I'm supposed to do when I sit down. <laughs> sit down at the desk, you know, and like, you know, everybody fake it till you make it. So I'm in there. I'm like, yeah, I know security. And then they sit me down in front of a sim. I'm like, I've never even heard of what a sim is before. So this is cool. Um, you know, but very quickly, like, you know, I started digging into it. I love researching, honestly, you know, from cybersecurity point, if you can, if you can learn, if you're, you're willing to go out, you're passionate, you're interested, you could, you could find a knack. There's a lot of areas in cybersecurity. There's, it's not just one thing. It is a whole bunch of things and you can specialize in a lot of them, one of them or any mix. Um, me personally, the thing that stuck me and got me to where I am now is I really kind of got into digging in the logs. I, I loved figuring out how to find the little puzzle pieces to find the bad guy. I love uh, figuring out how to identify what logs I can pull in to get a crumb for a technique. And um, you know, this is well before I was hip to MITRE. And uh, I kind of used that to propel me to really learn the game. So, you know, recommendations for people trying to get in. There really is no barrier. It, there are so many resources out there, whether it's, you know, traditional schooling, whether it's going and getting certs, whether it's a hybrid, you know, workshop boot camp type thing, or you just going and self-researching. Find a thing that really interests you and dive into it, and that's going to propel everyone. I mean, that's what it did for me, and I, I believe that's the same for pretty much all of us. So, awesome. what what when when you talk about everything cyber, um, what are kind of like your long term goals when it comes to cyber? Then, oh, that shifted. I'm in leadership now. I don't even know how to speak <laughs> to that, man. I, I'm I'm in leadership in a in a corporate America environment, man. That's uh. Um, no, I don't know. I, you know, for me, the passion piece is what I want to hang on to as much as I can. So, um, mine's pivoted from the cybersecurity space where I, I right now, what I want to do is I want to find ways to 
show the kids like you know like me that are out there growing up that didn't know this was an opportunity that there is it's a lot of bright individuals in this world um i'm working with some local high schools trying to you know get my foot in the door to help propel them and i'm coming across some of these high school kids that are brilliant they're very smart and you know a lot of these kids are in their city some of them might not have a chance to actually get to show their talent um but from that to building out a team to really kind of propelling this notion of thinking differently um i my opinion, and it's not necessarily slamming anybody that's out there doing this. There are many ways to do this job, but I believe wholeheartedly that you, your people are your, are your core and your key. Uh, the technology is only as good as the people that use it and the people that build it and the people that tune it. And um, empowering those folks to think outside of the box, to innovate, to, you know, to not just look for the, you know, for the posting that's out there and just follow it step by step is that's how you're going to defend your enterprise. Understanding how to do things differently and then, you know, supporting them. And, you know, the other thing, too, I'm sorry, I'm rambling now. Yeah, um, go for it. This you know, is your time. Oh, time. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm anxious to get your opinions. I tend, when I get passionate, it's like, all right, we're running. All right, let's go. Let's go. I'm ready. I'll, we'll talk for hours. Um, you know, the other thing, too, is, you know, there is a real value in, in diverse thinking when it comes to this stuff. I think InfoSec has had a long time of, you know, kind of centering around uh, the same kind of folks, the same kind of thinkers, and it's created these barriers for entry. Um, I personally, and I only have a small little sample set of this, but this is my personal experience. You know, you look at people and you kind of see that they have a drive, they have an interest, they want to do this, but they come from a different kind of background. Maybe they don't have the, you know, 20 years of IT experience and, and they have to learn it. And you can create a platform to teach them. And then you let their passion run. And you see these people that have diverse thinking and they've come from different places. They're solving problems you didn't even know you had. And it's just, it's so cool. And I think that's, you know, where, where you ask, you know, what I want to accomplish. I want to open the doors for people into this field because it is so damn fun. There is so much to do and there's so much opportunity. So as much as I can open the door for folks and help folks succeed, that's what I want to do. That's my goal. That's so. Great. So when you talk about like what does success in cyber mean to you, would that be it branded or would you adjust that answer slightly? Uh, for me, like you're talking about my personal career. Well, like success, like um, I guess some people look at success, like the impact they have in the community versus impact as far as the career versus just like what you know and are capable of. Like, I don't know how you would define that, but how, how if you wanted to define it, what would that be? Uh, um i have roaring ambitions for what i might be able to leverage my you know my seat and my knowledge and my experience to to help improve or help create opportunities for but i'm gonna be humble and say you know i'll reference back to working you know with the local schools if i can find a way to help one of these kids understand that there's a dream that they didn't know they could have way earlier than i did my yeah. career is a success 100 percent that's awesome. That's so I want to say, before we ask my question, I do want to say, please, if you do anything, I, I don't care if you become successful or not. <laughs> Thanks, Lee. <laughs> even at high school. Okay? Let me but, know when it gets there, buddy, please. It's <laughs> really, really what, um, what speaks to me about that is like, you talk about the talent, you talk about the bright kids, you talked about, you know, maybe the opportunities aren't there. and I know that sometimes the hardest part, like we all know how normal schools are structured, right? Sometimes the ones that are the most talented 
aren't fit for that normal structure of a high school. So they may be failing because the passion's not there, not because they're not smart, but because it's just this whole system that they don't fit into. And they're like, well, I'm not even going to succeed in this. If the world's like this, then I'm, you know, I'm doomed to begin with. Um, mm-hmm. Just keep that dry. I, I really like, I really like that what you're doing because that like thinking about all the kids like that could be here, you know, and, and possibly making better, uh, better decisions. Um, you know, I'm, that's awesome that you're doing that. So thank you. So keep, yeah. keep doing that. I appreciate yeah, that. Lee. Well, thank you. I think I've seen at least over the past, I've only been in cyber for about 10 years as well. Right. So coming in, there was kind of the, old guard needing 20 years of IT network experience to even become an analyst and we're hiring a junior so that means you're like negative two to get this job right like mm-hmm. some impossible standards and requirements and it almost takes these companies and these industries to take a risk with these kids that are putting up the effort to grow their careers and become the you know the cybersecurity analyst or engineer that they want to be um, one of the things that we always try to hire for is the individual that goes out and learns on their own, mm-hmm. right? Has a home lab, uh, is doing educational courses. The amount of resources for cybersecurity out there is unbelievable. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Free resources too, mm-hmm. right? Like I learned Python via edx.org and these like college level courses that I could take on my own to learn a programming language, right? And it was free. Uh, it just took my time and effort to to do it, right? And so there's examples out there. Just we have to get rid of these stringent requirements to say you need to be this expert to do this job that you don't really need to be an expert in, right? Um, and so you know, I I saw it personally last weekend. I was out at Walmart's conference, uh, SparkCon. It was amazing. If you can go next year, go. It's a little nudge to Walmart, but I had never seen that kind of community community engagement um, with other vendors in the space. We talked about sharing communication, um, other vendors, other organizations, uh, you know, outside groups. The state had their own security kind of like group. Um, There's high school kids, like it was amazing. It was really heartwarming to see all these opportunities for people, um, you know, especially at a, in a state like Arkansas, right? Um, but I, I want to see more of that, and I want these organizations to start taking risks on these kids because they will shine. Yeah, and, and you know, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I want to ramble. Say like I was gonna say like the best thing about that young talent giving them an opportunity is when you give them the opportunity. I feel like they're the ones that'll work the hardest because they got the most. They feel like they need to prove. Right, just being that young gun ready to go. Right. Yeah. And then, they, and, then, and then they have that talent right that you know just growing up in a different generation of technology and using things or whatever or being able to explore things or knowing how to research things differently than we, how we research things right like there's this like native ability to learn in some of these folks um and what what's kind of cool is well there, there's two things right there's one where like person is going to flourish and maybe they might move on but the, the thing is is you're contributing to the community at that point i mean like you, if you make a really good cyber professional one i don't know how many connections i've had that have moved on elsewhere that I still lean into for all sorts of problems, things, whatever, yeah. right? Like when you build that network, it's not like you're losing an asset. You're just diversifying your communications and your community a little bit. 
that you can now reach out to, or two, they become so loyal because you gave them an opportunity. And that's the person that will stay with you the longest because they're like, Hey, I would never have this opportunity. I love what I do. And you've created an environment that I want to work in and that I've grown in. So you kind of have like the best of both worlds. I think when you're able to hire that hunger, young talent that you were able to, you know, create that platform or give that opportunity. Right. So, you know, I really think that's a strong case. Yeah. And I think that's awesome. I mean, the, the fact that your goals in your career is just to give back and have opportunities for other people is amazing. Right. It's not to go be the manager of managers and make, you know, like there's only so high you can go up in cyber, you know, but that's awesome that it's really giving back to provide those other opportunities for people coming up underneath you. I, I yeah. don't know, Mike. I don't know how the hell I got here. Um, I, I don't even know how I fell into this. I, I didn't have aspirations into being a cybersecurity manager, executive, or anything like that. And it's not that I'm trying to downplay that. That you know, that's just a personal feeling and choice. Um, but I'm here, so you know, they they decided to take a chance on me. So I'm going to show them why it's a value to take a chance on other people for sure. Absolutely, that's amazing. Pass along. So. Uh, I, thought, I thought it was funny. So Tom and I had talked previously and talking about like, you know, would it be worth being at like at that C level position? And like both him and I were kind of talking how I don't want to speak too much for you, Tom, but we were kind of talking like, <laughs> like, like that's a that's a place that would kind of be uncomfortable because we're so far removed from the people that we kind of care about when it comes to cyber. Right. Because yeah. we know the people on the floor make the biggest difference, but also like since both Tom and I have that strong feeling of wanting to make a difference, unless I could be, or, or he kind of agree with me, but he can speak to it too. If, if I was at a C-level position, I would have to be in a C-level position where I have the freedom to make whatever decisions I think make the best impact and still not be controlled by someone who's just above me or a board. So I'm still limited in playing the puppet master, but my head's like taking on most of the risk, right? It doesn't exist, <laughs> sadly. Right, right. Let us be ambitious for a minute, Mike. Let us let us dream, Mike. Come on. Yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah, yeah. yeah no, I mean, like, I, I know the reality, and that's why I don't feel like I could ever be there, right? Because, like, I feel like if you put me in that position, I should be able to make those decisions that really make these, the sweeping impact. Like, hey, we're changing this because this makes sense. I, I don't think I feel that seat. Well, I think we're talking about it from you being a security practitioner in an organization and maybe on the product side is different. I would, I would, like you know, offer up the fact that like we've, this collective group here have been able to move very fast and do what we want without any kind of like barriers. Um, but it, it's, it's different when you're tied to an organization with budget and revenue and board and the larger you know. scale. Right. Yeah. Right. 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 Yeah. Tom, it's up to you then. You need to be the first key level that has access to a SIM and EVR still. And once you find that role, let us know. All right. No, I think well, it, I think just let me get access to my people. Let me just get that. Let, you know, I, I know I'm not going to be able to be able to be technical. I, I've I've understood that, and it, they had to. It took three years for them to beat that out of me that I wasn't allowed to touch the tool anymore. You know, I had to teach people how to do it. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, but yeah, you know, as, at the echoing scott man they put put you at that level it would be it would be a dream if you had that kind of freedom and that trust and that you know 
that runway to go ahead and, and be in that place. I just, I can't help but dream what could be built with that type of mentality without that segmentation of leadership, with also, being able to get down and work, you know, talk with your people and inspire. That's the thing, right? Like if yeah. I had the runway to inspire people, man, yeah. what could you accomplish, right? I think it's just getting, I think there's organizations that have that freedom. I don't think it's in cyber yet. I think there's still a lot of gates and barriers with the board, the C-level, the managers. Well, it's hard to communicate, right? Like cyber is right. still a foreign language to the rest of the business in some right. aspects. Yep. Yeah. So I think it's going to take time to to kind of build into that. I don't, I, I'm, I'm sure it's out there in other organizations and business, you know, verticals where everybody has the same methodology, mindset and language and so they can be on the same page. But cyber, to your point, Scott, once it gets past the CISO level, their job is to dumb it down and be able to show value to everybody else. Mm -hmm. It's hard to have that communication. Yeah. Very true. Well, guys, I don't want to be the bearer of bad news, but we're kind of closing in on time here. So I want to try to... Uh, I know, I know. There's so many things. We'll have to have Tom back again. Go ahead. What, yeah, let's have Tom back. Let's do it. Yeah. Uh, I'd be Robert, happy to. Let's extend it. I'd be happy to. We, we have to just make sure we put a little note in there that so uh, Poli can't have 30 minutes to go through a Sysmon <laughs> rundown again. That's all. You will speak I went first. pretty quick. Time. I think you guys had a lot to say <laughs> after I went through, but whatever. We, we can go back and watch the recording. Um, so really what's good is um, the one thing I want to call out is really we have one thing coming up planned that people should be aware of, um, the Hunting for Impact Workshop. Lee, if you want to give like a quick what that is, go for it. So uh, if you've if you've uh, participated in our previous uh, workshops, that's how it's going to be. Um, basically, we have or we have an attack. We have log a log source that we're going to use. We're going to use the Elastic Sim to search on the data, and I'm going to walk you through and demonstrate two hunts where we find an artifact, and then we use the data that we have to pivot through the investigation and how we can really draw relationships between the events to finally paint the picture and say. This is what we're this is what we're seeing, and this is why it makes sense, and this is what happened. So it's a lot of fun. You get a badge. Um, unfortunately, you have to hear me talk for about 45 minutes, um, but that's it. Um, you get the recording, you get the OVA, you get the log source, and you can always go back and see our old workshops uh, and visit those as well. Uh, so, go ahead, Tom. Well, Mike, sorry. Oh no, I was going to say, Tom, it's been a pleasure, man. It was great chat with you i don't know you as well as these other guys but we'd love to have you back this has been awesome yeah we we're just starting to crack another some really exciting conversations there so no absolutely i'd love to you guys are great keep up the good work keep fighting the good fight and yeah i'd be happy to come back and, and chop it up with you guys anytime thank you for having gonna me be on your podcast yeah, I've been, you know what, I have a whole box of like, oh, a drawer full of like podcast things that I just, I'm like, yeah, I want to spin up a podcast one day. And it's just like, well, you know, you, you have a child and that time disappears, you know, you become manager, that time disappears. So yep. maybe one day. What's that? So and all the community work you're doing too, man. Yeah. Oh God, that would be awesome. That would be great to expand on that for sure. But thanks, guys. So, yeah, so I know everyone's getting mad in the Discord, some of you, about us having to shut down. At the planned time, I'm going to point out, I know this has been a great conversation, and I would love for it to go on longer, but this is a great opportunity to continue this at another time. So I just want to thank everyone for joining. Um, once again, love talking shop with friends, colleagues. Discord chat was really good this time, like having friends on with Tom. Um, if you like what you hear, check us out on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or just about anywhere else you can 
you know, get your podcast from. Leave a good review. It really helps us get discovered by others. Um, so, and then they can join in the conversation as well. So for the, for those of you who don't know that we also do a brief 30 to 45 minute episode, um, every week just hits on five breaking news topics on kind of what we think from intelligence reports, technical write-ups and stuff from a threat hunting perspective. Um, and it, it hits on, uh, every week at Wednesday. Um, so with that happy hunting, everyone, I just want to thank everyone for joining and I really love the conversation. It's been fantastic. Yep. Take care, everybody. Happy hunting, everyone. Take care. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Out of the Woods podcast. Be sure to subscribe wherever you heard this podcast so you never miss an episode. For more information or to connect with Cyborg Security, check us out online at www.cyborgsecurity.com and follow us on social media. We'll see you next time.